Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah ve salatu ve selamu ala Resulillah ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve men vela. Şeru ve la ilahe illallah, şeru ve la Muhammeden abduhu ve resulü. Allahümme salli ve sellem ve zil ve barik ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem teslimi kefira. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send abundant praise and blessings upon the Prophet Muhammad and his family and his followers until the end of time. Amin. Uh, today we're going to spend time on one verse, inshallah. <coughs> and this is the verse that starts the section on praising the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. And uh, this is a, a relatively long section, this section on praising the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And there are some parts in here that um, have been the source of much controversy um, especially in modern times I would say more but they've been the source of much controversy but we'll get there when we get there inshallah um, it's the thing is and, and we'll get to it when we get to it but the thing is when you read something in context and you give the author some benefit of the doubt it generally makes sense so when you read it in the context of all the verses, when you take a verse by itself, then it looks like, oh, what is he saying? But then, like right before it, it will say, don't say about him what the Christians said about their prophet. And you're like, okay, well, the poet's not making him God. <laughs> he just said that don't do that. And then at the end, it will say, for example, that, or towards the end of the section, that the Prophet sent them, um, you know, in the end, he's a human being. So all of the praise, it fits into that, um, that framework. So this first verse that starts off this section, it starts off, uh, and then Busiri says, قَالَ الْمُسَنِّفُ رَحِيمُهُ اللَّهُ وَنَفَعَنَ اللَّهُ وَإِيَّهُ بِعُلُومِهِ فِي الدَّارِينَ آمين. He says, ظَلَمْتُ سُنَّةَ مَنْ أَحْيَى الظَّلَامَ إِلَى أَنْ اشْتَكَتْ قَدَمَاهُ الدُّرَّ مِنْ وَرَمِي So he says, I've wronged the example of him. Who revived the black nights, praying until his feet complained of painful swelling. I've wronged the example of him who revived the black nights, praying until his feet complained of painful swelling. So this is the verse. Now, as we talked about before, this section of praising the Prophet comes after the opening section on love that we spent a lot of time on and the second section on the nafs, on issues of the heart. And one of the things that uh, Imam al-Bajuri says in, the, in, in talking about this section is that we realize that there's an importance and a reason why Imam al-Busiri uh, precedes this section with certain things. So for example, he precedes this section with talking about the nafs, the issues of the heart, and the soul and its purification and its diseases and you know all of that and how to deal with it and then he also spends some time in that section that we discussed talking about asking for forgiveness you know asking Allah for forgiveness and the third thing was expressing regret and the idea behind all of this is that this act of praising the Prophet is a great great act of worship and so Imam al-Busiri is giving us some insight as to how we are supposed to approach acts of worship. That we're supposed to approach acts of worship with hearts that are very 
humbled with the recognition of our own weaknesses, with an acknowledgement of the greatness of Allah, by seeking His forgiveness, with expressing regret. So we're intending to, you know, when you think about regret, then you think about, okay, what am I intending to follow? I'm intending to follow the way of this person, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so all of that precedes this, because the soil has to, the soil has to be readied. The soil, in this case, happens to be the soul, has to be readied before it can actually really benefit from talking about the Prophet And then even still, he starts the section with a level of regret. You know, it's it's an acknowledgement that the greatness of this human being is not. I haven't fulfilled this person's right. I mean, it's so beautiful. It says, I've, I've, I've betrayed the way of the Prophet And so let's start by some of the words that are used here. The first word that's used here is ظلمت. Uh, you know, I committed oppression against this. The, the way that it's translated is I've wronged the example. So I've wronged, I've committed a wrong, which a dhulm is a wrong. Uh, but dhulm in its most basic form is to put something where it doesn't belong. Or to not put something where it belongs. Right? Put something where it doesn't belong or to not put something where it belongs. So there's a certain way that I should be living my life if I'm claiming to follow the Prophet them, But... I'm, he's recognizing that he has some weaknesses there. So this is dhulm. The second word that's in here is sunnah. So he says, ظَلَمْتُ سُنَّةَ مَنْ I committed this wrong against the example. Here is translated as the example of the one who did this thing. Right? In this case he mentions praying in the night until his feet were swollen. So the sun, sunnah is, a, the word sunnah in general means the way. So, the, in, in general, in the language, in the Arabic language, sunnah can mean a good way or it can mean a bad way. It's just a way. You know, someone can have a good sunnah, they can have a bad sunnah. And whatever way they're taking is the way that they take. But in Islamic studies, sunnah is... Oh, salam alaykum. Salam alaykum. And salam alaykum Muslim also. And Sami, welcome. Um... The Sunnah in Islamic studies is the way of the the way that the Prophet takes in the Deen. So it's a very particular definition. The way that the Prophet takes in the Deen itself, in the way of Islam. Now, that one of the questions that I think that there's a lot of confusion that comes up in the Muslim community, and I'll probably, as usual, uh, um, add to the confusion rather than help to alleviate it. Uh, in terms of what the word sunnah means because when you talk to Muslims they use sunnah for all kinds of things and I don't think that most Muslims have clarity in their own minds as to what they mean by sunnah when they use the word sunnah Uh, so generally speaking it means the way of the Prophet in the deen however depending on which area of Islamic studies we're in sunnah can mean different things and this is why it's important Okay, so sunnah, if you're in the realm of hadith studies, the easiest way to remember this is you think about the person who's in this realm, what are they trying to do? So the person who's in the realm of hadith studies, what are they trying to do? 
they're trying to collect everything that they can about the Prophet Wasallam, right? It's the role of hadith. You collect everything you can about the Prophet Wasallam. So when they say sunnah, they mean the Prophet's statement and his action, statements, actions, uh, approvals, and his physical and character descriptions. Okay? Statements, actions, approvals, and physical and character descriptions. Alright? This is hadith. Now, if you take a different perspective, take the perspective of the one who is specializing in fiqh. Fiqh is determining what is allowed and what is not allowed. You know, to give rulings to things. This is halal, this is haram, this is sunnah, this is makruh, this is mustahab, all of these kind of things. They're giving a particular ethical ruling on an action. This is fiqh. So, if you use the word sunnah in the realm of the, giving a ruling on people's actions, then sunnah is something that's praiseworthy but not required. Okay, it's something that's praiseworthy but not required. Alright, so what does that mean? That means if you have a good intention when you do it, you get reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you don't do it, you're not punished. It's sunnah. It's highly recommended, but it's not required. So, for example, um, it's sunnah to pray two rak'ah of sunnah after dhuhr, right? That's why it's called sunnah, after dhuhr. Uh, but that's the perspective of the ruling okay so if you tell someone you should do this then you're looking at it from the perspective of the ruling but you could say also it's the sunnah to pray two rakah after dhuhr meaning that the prophet used to do this now you're just describing this is hadith okay the third possibility is that when you say sunnah you're looking at it from the perspective of not the one who's giving the ruling but the one who's coming up with the philosophy of how to give the rule usul fiqh so your role then is to say what is or is not a valid evidence so you say that the sunnah is a valid evidence for deriving rulings okay sunnah is a valid evidence for deriving rulings so what does that mean in that case it means the statements actions and approvals of the prophet see it's different than the first one the physical descriptions and the character descriptions are not part of the realm of normative rulings. Okay, so this, there's a lot of confusion on these things. And if it's not something that's related to deen, then it can be the sunnah in the sense that the Prophet ﷺ did it. And it cannot be the sunnah in the sense that it's not recommended. <laughs> right? So it can simultaneously be and not be the sunnah depending on which definition you're using. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I know it's technical and people don't like technical things. But it's important still. Uh, because people will come at you and they'll be like, well, you should do this, it's the sunnah. And you're like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> which sunnah are you talking about? And it's important because you need to understand. And we need to understand when we're talking to others too. Like, where, where, what am I trying to get across right now? Am I trying to get across that this is something that's praiseworthy to do? Okay, if that's what I'm trying to get across, then I should probably consider how am I getting it across? How am I conveying it? Am I doing it in a way that's understandable, that's pleasing, so on and so forth? Uh, you can also, for example, like men sometimes long lengthen their hair to get down to their shoulders. And they say this was the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. It was. He did have long hair at some points in his life, ﷺ. 
and that's not an issue of deen. So it's the sunnah in a physical description, but it's not the sunnah in sense of like, you should do this. However, that being said, if someone does something that the Prophet ﷺ did out of love for him, even though it's not an issue of deen, they're rewarded for it. Okay? So this is very important. Someone can do something that the Prophet ﷺ did because they love him. They want to do what he did. Even though it's not an issue of deen, and still get reward for it. Because the love of the Prophet ﷺ, this is a good connector to come back, because the love of the Prophet ﷺ turns it into an act of worship, even though it's not technically an act of worship. Right? But the love is what carries it there. So when he says the su- he's, he, he, got, he wronged the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that means that this is his way, the way of the Prophet. If you were to kind of like zoom out, and take what is Sunnah. Sunnah is the way of the Prophet. The most basic level, it's the way of the Prophet. How was the Prophet How did he interact with people? What did he do? What, did, what guidance did he bring us? How did he teach us to worship or not worship or so on and so forth? The third thing that's in these verses is Ahya uh, al-Zalam. So he revived, um, he revived the black knights. He revived the black knights. And we'll go into these in detail later. But this is referring to Qiyam al-Layl. This is referring to praying in the night. So when it says that uh, he brought life to the night, the literal translation is he brought life to the night. That means that's referring to Qiyam al-Layl. It's referring to praying at night. So it also comes up in hadith that talk about the merits of praying in the night in Ramadan, especially in the last 10 nights of Ramadan. That the Prophet ﷺ, he would wake up his family and he would do ihya in layl. He would bring life to the night, meaning they would pray. So we'll comment on that more later. So these are some of the things there. The last thing that it's referring to, until his feet complained of painful swelling, is a reference of this hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where his wife was seeing him praying in the night so much. And she asked him, do you pray in the night so much? But they say they used to pray in the night until his feet were swollen. He says, you're doing it so much uh, when all of your previous and, and, and coming mistakes are forgiven. And he said, should I not be? Should I not be a grateful servant? Which will also come to later. So these are the meanings in the verse. So let's get into the commentary. The first thing is that this is how he begins his praise. It's very, very strong language, right? Like he's beginning this section of praising the Prophet ﷺ with this statement that I myself have wronged his way. I myself have wronged his way. And then he describes him as the one who stands in the night until his ankles are swollen, his feet are swollen. So I'm not generally a fan of the overly guilt-tripping nature of American Muslim rhetoric. But this is a little bit, there's a little bit of guilt in this, right? I think that oftentimes we overdo it. Every single lecture you go to, every single talk that happens, it always begins on the premise of guilt. Well, this and this and this, but look at us. But this and this and this, but look at us. It's always the same angle, right? And so this is, this I think is a little bit different because it's coming out of, uh, it's coming out of a, a position of humility and not as a position, out of a position of self-hate. I think that there's a very fine line here. That rather than get humility, we get hate. 
you know, we just hate ourselves. We're so bad. We're so terrible. We don't do anything right because this is how we are and look how they were, right? As if problems never existed in human history. Uh, the false golden goldenification of Muslim history, <laughs> you can say, the false sanctification of Muslim history. Um, but the Prophet them, of course, he's saying, you know, you know, I, I, I've wronged his sunnah because I just I, and it's it's not as much you know again self hate as it's an acknowledgement of the greatness of his sunnah that his sunnah is that great. That even someone who's like Imam al-Busiri is saying, I didn't live up to it, you know, because he's such a great man. He was such a great man, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So one of the questions that comes up here is, how am I representing the way of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? I think it's a very personal question that is very interesting and kind of um, difficult. Now, if you're to really... You know, one things we saw and, and, and we've seen throughout with Imam al-Busiri is there's a lot of self-interrogation going on in the poem. You know, stepping away and looking at it. And, and so if I am to think about how am I representing the way of the Prophet them, it's a very difficult question. And my wife was telling me something recently that I thought was very deep. And um, if she's... I think she left. So, basically the question was, if you were incapable of speaking, okay, say you were incapable of speaking, then what would people understand from you as to the message of the Prophet It's a very interesting question, right? And uh, this was Yahya, I believe, or Zakaria, the one who, uh, Zakaria. I think anyone Zakaria the the uh, you won't speak to people three days except Ramzan, you know, only with sim, you know symbolic gestures. So if you can't speak, you know, I, and I w- I just been I'm thinking about this on and off since she said it to me. I think she I don't remember where she said it to someone else, but I don't think it was at USC because she wasn't at USC this week. Must have been somewhere else. Um, but what would people take? Like if if you couldn't actually say words, what would people derive from your character as to the way of the Prophet That's uh, it's a very kind of disturbing thing to think about, but I think important nonetheless. The other thing from this part of the the verse is that there's a sense of loyalty. You know, there's this I. I I've, I've betrayed his way. There's a sense of loyalty to this person that he's associating himself with. Um, and, and I think that this is something that's so, so important that I, I also believe is sometimes lost on, on modern life, this concept of loyalty. Certain, I would say, certain areas of modern life. But he's affiliating himself to the Prophet them saying that he follows him and believes him and so on so there's there's an element of like I have to fulfill I'm a representative of this person I'm affiliated with them you know and and there's of course this comes up in Islam in any number of places it comes up in Islam also in the story of Maryam that when she's pregnant with Isa then she 
kind of like goes off into a side and she's going through labor and so on and she says, I wish I would have died before this happened. And one of the things that's said about this is that she's not saying that she wishes she would have died because of the pain of delivery or anything like that. She's saying she wishes she would have died because she and her family were representatives of righteousness. And now she's going to come into, these, in, into the presence of these people that she lives with, and she's going to come into their presence with this child, and everyone knows that she's not married. So what are they going to assume about righteousness? They're going to say like, oh, see, these people are just hypocritical, and they're this and this and this. So she's saying, I wish I would have died before I would have caused this bad impression to those who worship God. It was bad, you know, I made the people who worship God look bad. Which is a very, uh, also deep, deep thing to think about. So he's saying that when in him acknowledging this and saying this, there's a sense of loyalty. That I have a responsibility to do my best in following the way of the Prophet And if I don't do so, then people will think poorly of him, even though it was me doing it. And look at this today, subhanAllah. Look at this today. People don't even want to know about the Messenger وسلم, because, of the, because of what the so-called followers of him are doing. And even people understand, you know, it, it gets to a point that even people understand it's hard. Now, I had an experience one time where someone I know came to Egypt and that was when we were first there. It's not to particularly pick on Egypt, but you know, this problem tends to be rampant in most parts of the Muslim world. Again, another unfortunate thing. And this person came to Egypt and they experienced a lot of sexual harassment. And uh, in the end, you know, even though they know better, their question was, what is this? Like, I thought these people were Muslims. You know? And there's, there's this thing of like, the behavior of the person pushes someone away from the greatest human being to ever walk on earth. The greatest human being to ever walk on earth. I mean, imagine how much, if you just even begin to think about how much benefit, on a purely worldly level, how much benefit we gain in our daily lives by knowing the Prophet them, and people are pushed away from him. And so they're, they're, they're mahroom. They're deprived of knowing. They're deprived of having knowledge of the Messenger them, A knowledge that is so, so profound and deep. There's so much detail. So much detail. All kinds of thousands and thousands and thousands of narrations about what he did and how he was and how he interacted with others. But it's in the living lives of people that others are introduced. And this is why Shaykh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghuddah, may Allah have mercy on him, he said that one of the reasons why Islamic manners is so important and I would encourage everyone to read this book, Islamic Manners, by Sheikh Abu Ghuddin. It's a fantastic book. He says that one of the things about manners is that you are the first means by which someone knows about Islam. So if your manners are not good, this is their first impression. And uh, that's obviously a, a heavy burden to bear. But nonetheless, we should try to to have uh, as as good manners as as possible. So there's a sense of loyalty there. The next thing is with this word sunnah, right? So sunnah. 
Everything and everyone has a way. The question is, whose way am I on? Everything and everything has a way. Whether it's the way you live your life, or it's the way that someone washes a car. Like, there's, there's sunnah literally for everything. And there's sunnah nullahi fin kawm, also a very interesting area of study that I don't think is spoken about a whole lot, but very, very interesting, which is the sunan, the sunnahs of Allah in the creation. So even Allah has, Allah has certain sunnahs in the way that He created the world. So, you know, everything has ups and downs. Everything comes to an end. Uh, after the hardship, there's relief. All of these kind of things are rules, they're sunnahs that Allah has established in creation. And so everything has a way. Uh, so when we look at our lives, we ask, which way am I actually on? And this really brings up the question of education. Um, something that's been bothering me a lot lately is because every single thing that gets done, uh, whether it is outwardly said so or outwardly recognized or not, there's a philosophy behind it. And there's a, there's a perspective behind it. And part of the reason why there's so much emphasis on following the Prophet them is because if you were to look holistically and really understand his life, then there's certain philosophical understandings of perspectives on the world that you're going to attain just by focusing on that. And if you stay with the people who learn from him and the people who learn from them and so on, then you'll, over time, you adapt this way of looking at the world that is in line with how the Prophet ﷺ looked at the world. And education has a huge influence on that. And when we look at, you know, like, what is, what is the philosophy that's underpinning so much of this stuff? Like, what is the philosophy that's underpinning our study of science? Or what is the philosophy that's underpinning our study of sociology or politics or economics or any of these fields that we go into? Right? What, is, what is it that's influencing how the questions are being asked and how the answers are being framed and how much, where, where there's benefit of doubt and where there isn't? You know, depending on the philosophy, one question, you might reject it. If, if the hypothesis isn't answered, you reject it. And if another question... Depending on the philosophy, instead of rejecting it, you just adapt it. Because it, it works differently. You're dealing with information in different ways. So what is, then what is the way that we're on in the end? And it's, a, it's also a very, very serious question. So what, what, how am I, uh, how do I decide what matters to me? How do I decide how I'm going to interact with people? How do I understand anything in life? And it goes back to uh, the way of the Messenger وسلم, which obviously deserves to be followed number five and we're going to take uh, everyone's going to have an, an on the spot assignment pop quiz <laughs> not a quiz but an assignment that I hope will be beneficial and I myself haven't done it yet so uh, I will also benefit from it inshallah so the other thing that comes up here is how do we think of the Messenger Right. Because if you look at the, the way that this line is, is structured He's saying, I have committed a wrong against the one who brought light to the darkness By doing this I have committed a wrong against the one who Then he says, brought life to the darkness until his feet were swollen That was the description of the Prophet ﷺ that he chose 
in this verse, right? But if all of us, and this is the assignment, right? We can take maybe just a few minutes, preferably if we don't talk to each other. Uh, you don't even have to write it down, really. But if you just sit, uh, you can sit and think about it and come up with it. And hopefully some people will share uh, what they come up with. But if you are the author and you are starting this line of poetry that says, I have committed wrong against the one who... What is the description that comes afterwards? Does everyone understand the question? So, we're writing the poem now. Without worrying about rhyming and all of those other things that you're supposed to worry about when you write poems. But you're writing this sentence. And you're starting the sentence and you're saying, I have committed a wrong against the one who... What do you fill it in with? So... I'm going to pause the recording. So let's continue. The next major thing is the importance of prayer. So one of the major lessons in this verse is the importance of prayer. And um, the thing that Imam Wusiri points out as a description of the Prophet is it's related to the um, uh, the, the way of his prayer, you know, the way of his prayer was that he would pray as such until his feet were swollen. And of course, as we mentioned, this is referring to praying at night. Um, and there's much to be said about praying at night. You know, the Prophet them said that you know you should try to pray at night because it is devil's salihin qablakum. It is the way of those righteous people that have come before you. You know, that you pray in the night. And um, the, the night prayer was obligatory on the Prophet And it was obligatory on his followers, according to most opinions, in the early period of Islam. This is why you see what you see in Surah Al-Muzammil. Stand in the night except for a little bit and so on. So this verse then encourages the standing in the night of prayer. And the Prophet ﷺ of course established this act and would pray in the night. And his companions would also pray in the night until the ordainment of the five daily prayers, which was when in Isra and Mi'raj, towards the end of the Meccan period. So in this early part of Islam, those early years, the focus was on this prayer in the night was a major portion of Islam in that early period. And even after the five daily prayers became obligatory and the night prayer no longer was obligatory upon the body of the Muslims, it remained required for the Prophet until his death. So the way of the Prophet is that he always prayed the night prayer. And he generally prayed, uh, as we know, basically eight, eight rak'ah of sunnah and three rak'ah of witr. So basically 11 rak'ah. But his 11 rak'ah would tend to be very long. So he might read like Surah Al-Baqarah in a rak'ah or in two. You know, just a very, very long time of prayer. And there's, there's narrations where this happened. Where like a companion came, saw the Prophet and then praying at night in the masjid came and joined him, and then he's like, and he finished Baqarah, 
then he kept going. <laughs> and like, he's wondering when is what's going to happen? You know, how long is this prayer going to be? And so the Prophet ﷺ would spend much time uh, in this in this prayer. And the way that Allah describes this in Surah Al-Muzammil is very beautiful. Um, and, and there's a lot of lessons here. So I'm, I'm using the study Qur'an. Some of you may have seen this that has uh, been published this last week. And uh, so far in my limited reading of it, it's been very beautiful. So it's a very limited reading. Certainly it's an extremely academic text. So you will find things that perhaps average practicing Muslims are not accustomed to seeing. Opinions that they have not heard before, references that they haven't seen before, so on and so forth, that's okay. We're, inshallah, able to have some level of uh, maturity with our faith, that we can read something that shows us new things. It's alright. And they referenced many, many tafsirs in, in, in writing this commentary. I'll show you. So, see, this is a lot more commentary than you usually get in the Quran, right? In the translations. So the whole bottom area is tafsir. And that's all based out of a number of works. And they actually tell you which work has been referenced when they're doing it. And there's symbols for it. So like, for example, it says um, a weighty word in Surah Al-Muzammal We're going to send upon you a weighty word. Right? So what does that mean? Refers to the Quran itself. The word of God is said to be weighty, both in the obligations that it entails for the Prophet and his followers. And then it says in parentheses, I-K. So I-K is Ibn Kathir, meaning this little piece that they got is from Ibn Kathir. Then it continues and it says S-Y. I don't know who S-Y is. Uh, you don't have yours, do you? Okay. So S-Y is someone else. And then there's a thought for Tabari, there's a number of, yeah, there's a cue for Qurtubi, so it tells you where it's gotten it. And it also gives you um, cross-references of verses. So if it's a topic that has come up in other verses in the Qur'an, it'll tell you this is also in this place, and give you all of the verses where it is, which is very nice. And it also has a set of essays in the back um, on different issues related to the Qur'an. And each introduction, uh, each chapter has an introduction. So nonetheless, the point is, it has this, this surah, Surah Al-Muzammal, is very, very early revelation. According to many scholars, it's the second, the beginning of the surah is the second thing to be revealed after the verses in Iqra. So you see how early this was talked about and how important it is to the message of the Prophet O thou enwrapped, it uses Old English. Some people don't like Old English. The thing about Old English is it has more staying power. So it's English that has been used for an extended period of time. It may not be commonly used, but at least people who are used, you know, you can get used to it and you understand it. So it says, O thou enwrapped, stand vigil at night, save a little, half of it, or reduce it a little, or add to it, and recite the Qur'an in a measured pace. Truly we shall soon cast upon thee a weighty word. So it's saying, stand in this prayer most of the night, except for a little bit, at least half of it, or more or less, and recite the Qur'an in a measured pace, and we're going to send this heavy word upon you. So this, this is the Prophet ﷺ is being prepared for the message through the night prayer. 
The night prayers, this prayer that you're doing at night, this is going to prepare you for the message that's coming. And truly the vigil of the night is firmest in tread and most upright for speech. This prayer that you do at night, is going to make you strong. It's going to make you steadfast. So they say in the commentary here, Vigil of the night translates Nashi'at al-Layl, which literally means rising at night. In this sense, it could also refer to the ascension of the spirit or the heart. That night vigil is firmest in tread, means that it leaves the strongest impression on the heart and is most conducive to establishing harmony between the hearing and the heart for the purpose of comprehending the Qur'an. It can also be understood to mean firmer in tread, meaning that the night is better than the day for vigil, recitation, and memorization of the Qur'an. So this is some of the things that come from this, right? This night prayer, it brings everything together. It brings your speech together, it brings your heart together, it brings your actions together. It's a quiet time when you're not going to be disturbed by anything else. So it's a time of great spiritual significance. And so the Prophet ﷺ is being encouraged to this. And, and required for him and he encourages also his companions there's one of the companions the Prophet said about him he's a great man if only he would pray in the night you know, indicating that this is, this is a little bit you know, it's, it's, it's going to take him to the next level it's going to take the person to the next level that they're able to do this act of worship um, one of the things that, that comes up with this then is of course the importance of prayer in general and since the night prayer is not required for us, the five obligatory prayers, they are. And so it's very, very important, as we mentioned before, that if one is going to go on a path towards Allah, this foundation of the path towards Allah is in that which is obligatory. That the most important thing, perhaps, that someone should be worried about in terms of worship is their prayer. The prayer is the line between belief and disbelief. The prayer is the distinction between one who believes and one who does not believe. The prayer is the mark of the Muslim, that this is what we do. Everyone will say about the Muslims, man, you guys pray a lot. Of course, we know, but we don't actually. <laughs> it's really just a few minutes. In the end, it's really just a few minutes. But even that looks to many people like a lot. And of course, sometimes there's a number of things that happen. Um, and, and the life should be arranged around prayer as much as possible. Sometimes you find that you cannot do a lot more prayer. So we have the obligation, and then you have different sunnahs. Of this, the 12 sunnahs of the obligations, so 2 before Fajr, 4 before Dhuhr, 2 after Dhuhr, 2 after Maghrib, and 2 after Asha are like highly emphasized uh, that the Prophet would almost always do them. And then you also have the prayer at night, of course, any time between Asha and Fajr. And then you have duha, which is units of two rakah of prayer between the time after sunrise until the, uh, right before midday. You know, so all of these are highly recommended. But sometimes someone finds that like this amount of prayer that I'm doing now, this is the most I can do, and that's okay. Like to be honest with yourself and to recognize limits and know what your life is and so on and so forth. It's okay, but at least let it be the obligation. This is, if this is the least that I, I can't do a whole lot more than this, I can only do the obligatory prayer, then what we need to do then is try to make that prayer as good as possible. So if there's no more give in quantity, at least let there be a give in quality. 
Okay, so I can't do any more. Let me focus harder on these ones that I'm doing. Try to set the, you know, make sure that the time is okay. Get rid of any distractions I can get rid of, so on and so forth. Do what you can to make it best. On top of that, sometimes people even find it hard to do the obligatory prayers on time. Maybe you have work situation. If you have school, it's not really generally as for older people. For younger people, sometimes. But for older people, school is not really usually a good excuse. There are some types of school that are harder to make room in than others. Uh, work can sometimes be an excuse. But see, the thing is, in America, we have the First Amendment. <laughs> so it's, uh, you can talk to care if you really need to. Um, but technically, your work should allow you to pray. And, uh, you know, jobs have also breaks that are required at different points and things like this. So if you're having a hard time with your employer side of it, then it might be good to talk to someone and see what the situation is and if there's any give. But if it's just work and trying to, you know, you can just barely get it in at work, okay. And you say, well, I barely get it in and I do it in these weird places and it's not like the greatest prayer that I ever have because I'm at work and so on. That's okay, actually. Okay, we don't have to beat ourselves up over it. It's actually a good thing. If someone's struggling that hard to get their prayer done on time at work, and you know they're putting in that effort, and maybe it's not the best prayer in the world, but it's still an act of submission. It's still an act of submission. An act of submission to Allah does not go unrecognized. So I used to have this problem a lot at work. Yeah, you know, go on. Not obviously in the masjid. Actually, in the masjid too. <laughs> You'd be surprised when you're the imam of the masjid. It's very hard to concentrate in prayer because there's just anything that happens, it's coming back to you. So, like you guys think that you can't concentrate when someone cries, when someone's child cries in prayer. Try being the not the one who's even leading the prayer, but like because I didn't lead out loud prayers in the masjid. Sheikh Muhammad would do that, but as the you know like resident imam. I'm the one that everything is going back to. So if someone's kid starts crying in prayer, all of the possibilities come back to me. Why did the imam read so long? Why did the imam read so short? How come nobody stopped the child? Why do we even have children here in the first place? All of them. Should I say something? Should I not say something? I said something last time. Should I say something this time? If I say something this time, it's going to be too much. How do I even know who that person is? Maybe I'm driving that person out. Like all of these issues. Shaitan just destroy your salat. So, salat is even hard when you're the imam of a masjid. But when you're at work, it's even harder sometimes. You know, I would be like finding some place to pray at the job. Just wherever I can go, find it and like hope nobody comes in because you just don't feel like explaining anything today. You don't want to do it every day, you know. And then you just, but that's still an act of worship. And that's still an act of worship that's very meritorious and very important. And it still has spiritual consequences, even if all of the uh, concentration is, is not there. So don't give up on it. That's my point. And it will still be rewarded, inshallah. The other thing that happens here is that if we look at the statement of the Prophet ﷺ, we get a very important insight as to the key to performing salah on time as well as increasing in Salah. So if, not only if one wants to pray on time, but also if they're going to pray regularly, if they're going to increase their prayer, they want to increase their worship in general, what is the key? It's in the hadith. It's in the statement of the Prophet ﷺ that we mentioned. So his response 
to his wife when she said, Why are you praying so much? was, Should I not be a grateful servant? Should I not be a grateful servant? It's in these two points that is the key to how to be good in your prayer. How to really get something out of the prayer. If you're doing the prayer out of like any other... I don't say any other because that would be an all-encompassing statement that will probably end up being wrong. But if you're doing it for other reasons, um, this is a very strong way to be better in prayer and to be do more prayer. Is to focus on the... Uh, state of submission you know I'm being a servant I'm doing this out of my servitude to Allah and also very importantly do it out of a state of gratitude that when you pray you don't pray out of being like forced to pray and again I think I mentioned this before about how we use words even they, they affect us sometimes you say like I have to pray you tell people I have to go pray after a while you're telling yourself like I have to go pray it has this negative feeling to it or is it I want to go pray it's two different things I want to uh, I'm grateful that I need you know, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to pray and I'm going to pray right now you know this, we're telling ourselves stories about what we think about prayer every day so the Prophet ﷺ is saying that this prayer is an act of gratitude Prayer that I'm doing is an act of gratitude. I'm doing it because I'm thanking Allah. I'm grateful to Allah. So then, of course, if you start praying, if you're sitting at night and you're like, you start feeling this gratitude, like, yeah, Allah, you've given me so much, then you're going to want to pray. And if you pray two rakah and you're grateful, then you're going to want to pray two more. Right? It's like if you give a Musa muffin. <laughs> it's Ismail's favorite book. If you give a Musa muffin. If in, in our case, when I was a kid, it was only if you give a mouse a cookie. Some of you might be familiar with that one. Now the industry has expanded. Markets have developed and increased, and the mooses now are eating muffins. So if you make the turaka out of gratitude, it gives you more. You want more, you want more. So gratitude is actually the key. And gratitude is one of the, shukr is one of the most important issues of the heart. It's really one of the most important issues of the heart. Uh, and it's, it's not the easiest. But it's very, very important. As, the, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That if you, give, if you are grateful, I will surely increase you. Uh, sometimes, you know, we can't think about it like mathematics. Some people might think about it like mathematics. Well, you know, alhamdulillah, I'm doing good this year, but I need to do better next year. We just throw in some gratitude, Allah will hook me up, and then we'll be better off. It doesn't work that way, right? And even, even sometimes you can have the same thing. Now, this is the interesting thing about gratitude, is you can have the same thing, but when you have gratitude, it's more. Exactly the same, but with gratitude, it's more. Uh, and you see this, um, subhanAllah, in so, many, in so many different ways. So this is a very, very important uh, attribute of the heart. And it's a, it's a recognition of the servant-lord relationship. You know? there's, there's two more points I want to make before we stop for the day, inshallah. Two more issues in this verse. The first one is, was the action of the Prophet extreme? 
Of course, we have to be careful because if we were to say that it's possible that we're like dancing on the borderlines of disbelief when we talk about these kind of things, but I'm raising it as a theoretical like question because if we look at our communities now, if you were to find someone who like prays all night, probably most of us would look at that person like they're an extremist. We'd be like, well, this person's going a little bit overboard. They're doing a little bit too much. Even if they prayed eight rakah every night, we'd be like, oh my God, this person is, wow, you know, unbelievable. Someone prays eight rakah every night. I mean, you could probably pray eight rakah in half an hour, if really, if you wanted to go pretty quickly. But the Prophet them was his act extreme. It's an important question because as we are pushed to a deeper and deeper policing of ourselves and our communities, there can sometimes be collateral damage. And even I was thinking about this when I came across, I was shown something yesterday from Fadila de Sheikha, which was the letter that she wrote her best friend in, high, in her high school yearbook. I'm not going to mention the contents, don't worry. <laughs> her best Muslim friend in the high school yearbook. But I was just thinking like, subhanAllah, that zealousness for the deen, now we would probably look at that with a little bit of a... I mean, there's nothing wrong in it. There's absolutely nothing wrong in it. There's no, no tint of anything that should raise eyebrows. But if you look at it now, and like there's a young person talking like that, you're like, I don't know. Maybe this person is a little bit, you know? So the, the, the policing of our communities has consequences. That's what I'm trying to say. And so, was it, is that too much? Um, and... So I'm going to share some thoughts on that because the thing is that Islam is strong and, and faith is strong in general. Like someone who really believes in Allah or God or whatever they call it, it's, it's a, it can be actually a very, um, it, it can at sometimes be unsettling. And I'm not saying this only for Muslims. Like I'm sure some of you have had conversations before with really evangelical Christians and thought to yourself, like, whoa, this is scary, right? Because this is just a little bit too far for me. You know, it's a little bit... Are you there? <laughs> like, what's... Are you present right now, or are you just you're somewhere else? And so, so faith can be a very, very powerful thing, in or out of Islam. So when you look at someone who's, like, doing so much worship and all this kind of stuff... What are some things that help? One of them is a sound and deep education. In Islam in particular, we can talk about. Because Islam is very, very powerful. And Islam is very, very vast. And so a deep and sound education is very, very important. Because the Sharia is a straight guide. It's a guide to that which is right. It's laws, it's rules. It's, it puts boundaries on the expression of that, that internal power that is one's spirituality. You know, this is why the early scholars of Sufism or spirituality or whatever, they always, always said, like, this path of ours, Al-Kitab sunnah Like, you cannot go on this route without the book and the sunnah. It's not even, you don't make up your own way. And so the rules of Islam are very important because it gives, there's guidance. It's not just like, you know what, I feel like these people are oppressors, I'm going to do whatever I feel like. No, you don't get to do whatever you feel like and you're going to stand in front of Allah for whatever you do. So this is the first thing. The second thing that's very important 
is the company of good teachers and good company, good companions. Very, very important. Keeps the person from going all over the place. And you see it sometimes. Usually when you see people whose ideas maybe start getting a little bit strange, usually it's because they're alone a lot. And they haven't bounced their ideas off anyone else. So they're reading books by themselves, they're hearing things by themselves, and they just like come to conclusions. And it's not... There's, there's, there should also be a shura in the educational process. And Sheikh Akram Nadwi talks about this a lot. May Allah preserve him. That there's one, he says one of the things that made the early scholars so great was the scholarly community that they lived in and they didn't just come up with things. Like these people who had studied for all of these years and, and they know the Qur'an, they know the hadith, they know all of this different stuff. They're coming to their conclusions in a body of people that are also very, very learned. And so you have things like what I said before about Imam Malik who said that he, doesn't get, he didn't give fatwa until 60 of the people of Medina said that he can give fatwa, meaning the scholars of Medina. So there's been, a, there's been a refining of one's thoughts that can come with being with good teachers or it can also, we can also be leveled by good company. A good company can also level us. You know, they'll tell you like, hey, you know, maybe you should go home. <laughs> maybe it's time to go wash some dishes. Maybe you should go to work. You know, there's different things like this that are important. Um, and we, we mentioned that before when we talked about the signs of a spiritual teacher. And one of them was that they should work. <laughs> you know, like if they, they, it's, it's not, they should have some means of having income. Um, and it doesn't mean that they have to work full time or whatever. It might, like we shouldn't be so negative or, or so restricted on how we look at work. But that there's balance in life. There's different things that people do. And so this is uh, part of it as well. And sometimes of life might have, uh, you might not work at certain times. Maybe someone's going to college or they're going to school or whatever. I don't want to create a negative lens to look at people through. But the point is, good company helps and good teachers help. Without the above two, those above two, they keep make sure the person stays in their lane as they go deeper in their commitment to Allah. But as I said before, uh, that is, it does take effort. And that's why we ask Allah to guide us to a siratul mustaqim, to the straight way. And this is also one of the wisdoms of the Prophet saying that in the hadith about Qul amantu mustaqim, that say, I believe in Allah and then take a straight route. You know, not only have be steadfast, istiqama has multiple meanings. It's not only to be steadfast, but it's also to take a route that's even and balanced. And you go and you grow, inshaAllah. So this is this. And the last one is that he says, that he brought life to the darkness. And prayer and remembrance of Allah are sources of light. Prayer and remembrance of Allah are sources of light. So you can say that he brings light, he brings life to the darkness, but there's life in acts of worship. There's an illumination and life that's brought to us as a result of those acts of worship. And Al-Izz ibn Abd salam he said something beautiful. He said that when a seeker engages in an act of obedience in the right way and with sincerity, it creates light in their heart. So someone who is going to Allah, when they engage in an act of obedience, seeking Allah and in the right way, uh, then it creates light in their heart. And as the acts of obedience increase, the light increases and envelops until the obedient person elevates their status and deepens their understanding of Allah. 
So this light in their actions, it helps them in their growth. And sometimes things can be overwhelming. This will be the last point. Sometimes things can be overwhelming. And it's really, really important, Yerhamakullah, to remember that these acts of worship, they do bring light. And they do bring aid to us. So, for example, like today, I was really restricted. Qabd. You know, you have qabd and you have bust. You have times that you feel very constricted, times that you feel very on top of the world. And usually what happens when you feel really like this is that you, you, you feel a lot of resistance to do some act of worship. It might be studying, it might be reading Qur'an, it might be making dhikr, it might be praying, whatever it might be, but you feel a lot of resistance to do that act. So then what happens? You have a choice. Either you stay in this resisted, restricted place, or you force yourself to break out of it, and you do something good. And when you do something good in the right way for the right reason, you get a little bit of a spark, for lack of a better way of describing it. So it feels very dark, and it feels very like this is terrible, and then you just say to yourself, La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. Start saying to yourself, Allahu Akbar. I mean, really, subhanAllah, everything feels so overwhelming. And you say, Allahu Akbar. And then everything feels so, it's okay. So you just repeat it. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. It starts to settle. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. starts to settle. Then it helps us to get past this. Once you break through the little barrier, then it's fine. And you realize that this was all shaitan. Because you're like, wait a second, 10 seconds ago I had an issue. And now it's a da'i So you realize this is like the battle. So remember that this, the acts of worship that we do and obedience that we do, they bring light. So we ask Allah to increase us in those acts, inshaAllah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from us and forgive us and help us to be obedient to Him in all that we do. And may Allah help us to follow the way of the one who brought life to the darkness until his feet complained of the swelling. We ask Allah to send peace and blessings upon the Prophet Muhammad We ask Allah to help us to follow the one who was a mercy to all of the worlds and the one who was the best of Allah's creation and the one who did not harm anyone and the one who was a guidance for all of humanity we ask Allah to have mercy and blessings on the one who was the greatest gift to all of creation, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, and we ask him to forgive us of our sins and our shortcomings. Ameen. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam.